Thank you, Minister. That concludes general questions. Uh, the next item of business is First Minister's questions, and I call it question number one, Douglas Ross. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, rules of this Parliament prevent me from asking crucial questions about the scandal over the SNP finances. So I cannot dwell on this here, but I do want to give the First Minister an opportunity to be transparent with my opening question today. Because last night, the First Minister became the SNP's Treasurer. So while this is still a party matter, it is also now a government matter if the First Minister is compromised. Mm -hmm. If his hands are tied, if the party of government is about to go bankrupt, or if he himself may become involved in the police investigation. And yesterday, the Deputy First Minister said this. Going forward, the governance of the party needs to be about transparency, openness, and people should be able to question about the accounts. And we agree and believe that there are legitimate questions that the Scottish public deserves to know answers to. So in the interests of transparency, will Hamza Youssef agree to make a statement to Parliament on the financial scandal engulfing the party of government here in Scotland? Um, what I would say to, to Mr Ross is that obviously in terms of standing orders, First Minister's questions is the opportunity to put questions to the First Minister that fall within the responsibilities of the First Minister as First Minister and of course the responsibilities of his government. And therefore, I am not entirely clear that that question has met the requirements of standing orders. Um, I am looking at the First Minister to see if he has anything he wishes to add to what I have said. First Minister. I am happy uh, to answer the question. I, I know there are uh, some, of course, serious issues for the party that I lead, the SNP, to address. I'm not going to shy uh, away from that, uh, presiding uh, officer. That's why in my very first act as SNP leader, attending my very first National Executive Committee, I'm pleased that we got agreement from that committee. They elected uh, the body uh, that oversees the party uh, that is elected by our members to a review into transparency and governance, and not only into a transparency and governance review, but one that has external input, particularly in the issues of financial oversight. So, of course, that is an important job, an important role for me to take forward as leader of the SNP. But let me also say that what I am doing and what the government I lead, what we are doing collectively, is focusing relentlessly on the day job. That is why, in the first few weeks of being First Minister, I, not I didn't just double the fuel insecurity fund, I made sure we tripled yeah. the fuel insecurity fund. Now, I know Douglas Ross wouldn't want to talk about that because, of course, it lays bare the harm the Tory cost of living crisis is doing to households up and down the country. But that's also why, in the first few weeks as First Minister, I made sure I focused... I will suspend proceedings, First Minister. Please resume your seat. OK, we will resume proceedings. Please continue, First Minister. Douglas Ross will be pleased. It was me that got interrupted uh, for, for once, uh, no doubt. Uh, this is why, in the first few weeks as First Minister, I also announced £15 million for school-aged childcare, targeted towards the lowest-income households. £25 million, additional £25 million to support the just transition, additional funding to support GP practices that are in our areas of highest deprivation, £25 million to be able to buy back or long-lease empty properties for the social rented sector. So these are priorities uh, for me, the priorities of the Scottish people. And while I take my responsibility as leader of the SNP extremely seriously, I and the government that I lead uh, will be focused relentlessly on the priorities of the Scottish people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ross. The, the first words from the First Minister when he stood up uh, where he was happy to answer the question and then basically refused to do so because I was simply asking uh, for a statement and transparency uh, and I do think it is needed from the First Minister because the secrecy uh, must end. But I'm going to move on to one of the matters of substance that the First Minister should be focusing his attention on instead of his huge distraction within the party. Uh, last year, an SNP government agency introduced guidelines that encouraged more lenient sentences on under-25s, even in some of the worst crimes. The Justice Secretary was just asked about this in the session before FMQs. So can I ask the First Minister, does he fully support the policy which was brought forward for consultation 
when he was just a secretary. First Minister. Can I say that this is, of course, a very important issue uh, indeed. And while uh, I won't comment on individual sentencing decisions, it wouldn't be right for me to do so uh, as First Minister. Let me just clarify uh, uh, some issues around the sentencing guidelines, which I think are really, really important. I heard Angela Constance uh, make these uh, points uh, in response to a question earlier on. Uh, sentencing guidelines are, of course, rightly, entirely the responsibility of the Independent Sentencing Council. Decisions about whether to approve those guidelines are, of course, for the High Court. Now, uh, the, the, Cabinet Secretary, the new Cabinet Secretary for Justice and Home Affairs, uh, she has written to the Chair of the Sentencing Council to discuss their important work. And that letter knows that she will discuss how the Council plans to keep uh, those published guidelines uh, under review. But it is also important that when it comes to decisions on sentencing, not only are they rightly for the independent judiciary, but also that they are evidence-based. And for anybody who has read that sentencing guideline, I'm assuming uh, Douglas Ross has done so, you can see a comprehensive guideline that is evidence-based in terms of its sentencing of young people. And the last thing I would say, presiding officer, on that sentencing guideline, of course, uh, notwithstanding all of the good uh, that is uh, in there, it's very, very clear that there is no bar on imposing a custodial sentence on a young person where, of course, the judiciary consider that to be appropriate. But that must be a decision not for the First Minister, not for government ministers, neither, I would say, for opposition colleagues. It is a decision, rightly, for the independent judiciary. Dr. Shaw. A few weeks ago, my party and almost everyone in Scotland was outraged at the case of a 13-year-old girl who was raped at a park in Dalkeith. Her attacker, Sean Hogg, was found guilty of rape, but he didn't go to prison. All he had to do was carry out 270 hours of unpaid work. The judge said if Hogg had committed the crime when he was over 25, he would now be behind bars. So that confirms that the problem here is the sentencing guidelines that were introduced. It's very clear that the SNP's justice system is broken. So will the First Minister fix it? Uh, before I ask the First Minister to respond, I would remind everybody in the Chamber that this actually is a live case and therefore any reference thereto should be made with extreme caution. First Minister. Uh, and with that uh, caveat uh, in place, presiding officer, uh, let me also say uh, in my reaction uh, to that case, I can understand why people do have concern, but I must go back to the central point here that sentencing decisions are, of course, rightly for the independent courts and the independent judiciary. The Lord President reminded me of that uh, when he made some remarks uh, on the public record when I attended the court of session uh, to give my oath as the First Minister of Scotland. And I committed to upholding the independence uh, of the judiciary, a, a responsibility I take with the utmost seriousness. I also read the very distressing account of the, 13, uh, the victim who was 13-year-old uh, at the time and also heard from her family uh, on the public statements that have been made. And anybody, I think everybody, frankly, uh, would sympathise with the strong feelings uh, of uh, the victim. And it's important to say at this stage, talking in the general, not about that specific case, of course, that 98% of all of those who are convicted of rape, uh, were, were convicted of rape between 2018 and 2021, did receive a custodial sentence. So it is important that we continue to give the judiciary the independence that they have. It's important to have that separation uh, between government and judiciary. Uh, but what I would say is that in the letter that Angela Constance has sent to the Sentencing Council, to uh, the Lord Justice uh, Clark, uh, they want, uh, she would like to discuss and the government would like to discuss the issues around how these sentencing guidelines are kept under review. And I take the point that Douglas Ross makes. There is clearly a public interest uh, in that sentencing guideline. Douglas Ross. The First Minister mentioned that he had seen the comments from the victim and her family, and this is all in the public domain and is very legitimate to raise here in the Chamber. The grandfather of the victim said this, with this new ruling they've got, any person under 25 can go out and do any crime they want, however horrendous it may be, and there's a good chance that they will get a community payback. And the survivor of this rape said this, when I was told he had been found guilty, I felt a wave of emotions. I didn't know how to react. I cried. I think I cried with relief. Now it makes me think, why did I even bother reporting the rape 
in the first place. She continued, whoever is in charge of the justice system needs to sort this out. You say you care about victims like me, but how can a serial rapist receive 270 hours of community payback? Her final line was, why is it okay to rape anyone and not go to jail? The First Minister seems to be hailing 98% of people convicted of rape going to prison. It should, it must be 100% of rapists convicted of that crime going to prison. So let me repeat the words of the victim as my question to the First Minister. Why is it okay for anyone to rape someone and not go to jail? First Minister. So again, speaking uh, in the general, not about a spe spe specific case, uh, I, I agree with the sentiment that if somebody commits rape, they should go to jail. I believe that. But of course, I also believe very, very firmly that it is up, it is up to the independent judiciary, it is up to yeah. judges, uh, it is up to uh, those in the High Court to make a decision about what the appropriate punishment is for an individual for the crime that they have committed. And let me again uh, just refer back to the sentencing guideline, which is, of course, the central issue that Douglas Ross uh, raises with me. The guidelines make it clear that as well as looking at issues around rehabilitation, consideration of sentencing for young people under 25, they make it very, very clear in that sentencing guideline that other factors, including punishment, protection of the public, uh, and expressing uh, strong disapproval of offending behaviour, should also be taken into account. So the courts can still, even with this guideline in place, impose a custodial sentence on a young person if they consider that to be appropriate in light of all the facts. But I take uh, what, what has been said by the victim and indeed uh, her grandfather uh, very, very seriously uh, indeed. And that's why we are looking to improve uh, the, the justice system when it comes to particularly those uh, individuals, particularly women who are uh, often the victims of sexual offences uh, and of course uh, rape. And we'll shortly introduce our criminal justice reform bill, which seeks to make those changes uh, to the court system, to the justice system, in order to be able to uh, improve uh, the experience and improve outcomes of justice for victims of sexual offences and rape. And I hope it will get support from right across the chamber. I call it question number two, Anna Sabar. Officer, on Tuesday, Hamza Yusuf tried to convince the country that he represented a fresh start. Uh, 16 years of command and control, financial mismanagement and a complete lack of transparency. This isn't just how they governed their party, it's how they govern the country. Just one example, the ongoing ferry crisis. £200 million over budget with no ferries in sight. And last week I was in the Western Isles and I heard directly from people about the consequences of this failure. Cancelled ferries, meaning missed cancer appointments, lack of supplies coming in, produce not getting out and businesses going to the wall. In 2017, the then SNP Minister for Transport and the Islands said resolving the Western Isles ferry crisis was a priority. Six years on, they're still waiting and it's got worse. So can I ask the First Minister, who was that incompetent Transport Minister and where are they now? First Minister. Can I say that I, I of course recognise the challenges that our ferry services, those, those who rely on our ferry services at island communities, uh, have suffered uh, in the last few weeks, particularly uh, given uh, the Easter uh, tourism uh, season. But let me also speak very clearly to those island communities that we understand not just their frustration, but we are taking action uh, to ensure that we bolster the ferry network services. That's why this government has bought and deployed an additional vessel in the MV Loch Frisa. That's why we chartered the MV Arrow to provide additional resilience and capacity. That's why we commissioned two new vessels for Isla. That's why we commissioned two new vessels for the Little Minch routes. That's why we progressed key investments in ports and harbours. That's why we con confirmed additional revenue uh, fund funding for the operation of local authority ferry uh, services. And that's why, uh, of course, we are looking forward to the MV Alfred and, and provided additional funding uh, to CalMac for the MV Alfred, uh, Alfred uh, to provide additional resilience, not just for the next few weeks, uh, but for the next uh, nine uh, months. So this is, of course, a very serious uh, matter raised by Anna Sawar, but we are a government that is taking action to ensure that we have resilience on our ferries network. Anna Sawar. Officer, that was the great example of what's become typical of this leadership in the last three weeks. Comical Ali, everything's fine while the house burns down behind us. 
island communities will not believe those excuses uh, from the Minister. Uh, the First Minister and this government are totally out of touch. Six years ago, Hamza Yusuf's Transport Minister made a promise to fix this, but this SNP government has failed to get a grip and its financial mismanagement has cost us hundreds of millions of pounds, but has also cost people on the islands yeah. dearly too. The impact on the local economy has been devastating. One report has estimated that the loss of the Loch Boysdale to Malay Ferry alone costs nearly £50,000 a day. That's almost double the average annual salary on the islands. As one business put it, no ferry means no income, no jobs, no people. And the businesses in Uist have asked the Scottish Government to compensate them for their losses. Last year, Transport Scotland took millions of pounds in fines from CalMac because of the lack of services. So will the First Minister commit to compensating islanders and at the very least pass on the fines that the government have collected from CalMac to the people affected by this crisis? First Minister. Can I say I'll look at uh, any uh, proposals uh, that are suggested by anybody across this chamber, including the one uh, that Anas Sawar uh, just mentioned there. But look, I completely accept and, and, and I'm unequivocal uh, in saying that uh, the government understands and regrets any delays and disruptions uh, that uh, have impacted our island communities. What doesn't help our island communities is uh, sound bites and really easy sound bites from Anna Sauer, not in any attempt to provide any solutions, uh, but silly personal attacks around Comical Alley. That's not going to help uh, those in our island uh, communities uh, one single bit. What will help our island communities, of course, is delivering members, six members, new members. major vessels, six new major vessels to serve Scotland's ferry network by 2026. That's a priority for this government. And let's look at the facts, because of course there has been disruption. I'm not denying uh, that at all. But in 2022, there were 170,000 scheduled sailings across uh, the CHIFS network, and around 6.6% of those were cancelled. Over half of those were cancelled due to weather-related issues, and around 1.1% of the total scheduled sailings were due to technical issues. So the vast majority of scheduled sailings do take place uh, when they are meant to. The ferry service network we should bolster, we will bolster uh, in terms of its resilience, and that's why I look forward to the charter of the MV, uh, MV Alfred uh, coming on board in uh, the coming uh, days. So what I will say, Tana Sawar, I will end where I started. Any sensible suggestions from across the opposition, from across this chamber, uh, will be listened to by this government. Anna Sauer. The, the harsh reality is the island communities just don't believe them. Yeah. Island communities feel completely let down and they've heard these excuses for years. And they can't wait more years of government failure. This is impacting the lives of islanders right now. Businesses are failing right now. Millions of pounds are being lost right now. Exports are stuck on the islands right now and people need support right now, and that's why they need that compensation scheme. But, Presiding Officer, this is no fresh start. Hamza Yusuf has served in government for over a decade. A failed transport minister with hundreds of millions of pounds wasted on ferries that never sailed. A failed justice secretary with millions of pounds wasted on botched prosecutions and court delays. A failed health secretary with over £300 million wasted on delayed discharge while people wait to get life-saving treatment. And just three weeks in, a failed First Minister, bogged down in scandal, unable to lead and completely out of touch with the priorities of the people of Scotland. So can I ask the acting SNP Treasurer, why should Scots keep paying the price for SNP failure? First Minister. Can I say, uh, once again, to Anna Sawar, we are acting now. That's why the MV Alfred, an additional vessel which we have helped to fund CalMac for, is coming on board in the next few days. So that is tangible action which will make a difference to our ferry networks right here and right now. And he says that the people of Scotland don't trust us. He was in the Western Isles. Can I remind him the Western Isles has an SNP MP and an SNP MSP? So the people of the Western Isles absolutely do trust members, us. Members, members, we need to hear the and First he says, Minister respond. He says First Minister. That we haven't been getting on with the job. Well, I'm, I'm afraid that people in Scotland disagree with them. When I stood here on Tuesday uh, and announced and articulated our policy perspective, I'm delighted it got support from the SCVO. It got support, some of the policies I announced got support from Dr Liz Cameron 
the, the Chief Executive of the Scottish Chambers of Commerce from Transport Scotland, uh, trans, uh, Transform Scotland, forgive me, in relation to the pilot, uh, in the terms of the pilot for peak rail fares being abolished, from the Scottish Whisky Association, from the Chartered Institute of Housing in Scotland, from the Scottish Empty Homes Partnership, from Crisis Scotland, from Reform Scotland, from the Poverty Alliance, from Stop Climate Chaos, from Parkinson's UK. So this is a time for new leadership, of course, which I'm delighted to bring uh, to this government, a time for a fresh start. The people of Scotland recognise that. Maybe it's time Scottish Labour should recognise that too. I call question number three, Maggie Chapman. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister whether he will provide an update on what recent engagement the Scottish Government has had with the UK Government regarding the proposed development of the Rosebank oil and gas field in light of the Scottish Government's draft energy strategy and just transition plan. First Minister. Licensing, exploration and production of the offshore oil and gas sector, of course, does remain reserved, regrettably, to the UK Government. The Scottish Government is clear that unlimited extraction of fossil fuels is not consistent with our climate obligations. It's not the solution to the energy price crisis, meeting our energy security needs, or indeed ensuring a just transition for our oil and gas workers as North Sea production inevitably declines. That's why we need a new plan for Scotland's energy system. The draft energy strategy, strategy and just transition plan seeks to do uh, this. The Scottish Government is absolutely committed to a just transition and ensuring we take workers with us on that important journey to net zero. And we won't do to the North East what Thatcher did to mining and stealing communities right across yeah. Scotland. Yeah. Mackie Chapman. So for that response. While recognising that licensing is reserved, the draft energy strategy and just transition plan sets out a position that in order to support the fastest possible and most effective just transition, there should be a presumption against new exploration for oil and gas. Since the draft plan was published, the UN Secretary General has said, our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once, ceasing all licensing or funding of new oil and gas, stopping any expansion of existing oil and gas reserves, and shifting subsidies from fossil fuels to a just energy transition. Whether it's Rosebank today or other proposals to drill tomorrow, does the First Minister agree that a just transition on a livable planet depends on our firm commitment to a fossil fuel-free future? First Minister. I do agree that we want and we should all want a fossil fuel-free future. And I do agree on that. Delivering on our climate obligations is, of course, an absolute priority. One of the first things I did, I think, in my second official visit as First Minister, I went to the northeast of Scotland and I spoke to those who are absolutely committed to that just transition. That just transition, particularly in the northeast, I want the northeast of Scotland to be the net zero capital, not just of Europe. I want it to be the net zero capital of the world. I believe it has the potential to do so. And so, Maggie Chapman is absolutely right that first and foremost, we have to make sure that any decisions that are taken by the UK government uh, must be taken in relation to our climate obligations. We want the UK government to strengthen its climate, climate compatibility checkpoint. We've asked for tougher, more robust climate tests. Secondly, we should ensure that they align with our energy security needs. And thirdly, and this is really central, and I believe Maggie Chapman will absolutely agree with this, we must take the workers of the North East with us. As I've already said, we will never do to the North East what Margaret Thatcher did to our mining and steel communities. We will not decimate sectors. We will not, we will not leave a single worker on the scrap heap. And that's why, I'm to, that's why I will continue to invest in the just transition and accelerate that just transition as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, supplementary, Liam Kerr. Very grateful, Presiding Officer. First Minister, new exploration and production in the North Sea would protect over 70,000 Scottish jobs. It would help our energy security and it would have a positive impact on emissions rather than offshoring our responsibilities. Therefore, will the First Minister re-examine the plans in his threadbare energy strategy to close the North Sea or will he continue to be dictated to by a cabal of green MSPs? First Minister. That, of course, is not what is in uh, the draft, draft strategy. But, of course, if we were to unleash and truly unlock the green economy, then we are talking about tens of thousands of jobs yep. over the next couple of decades. And we want to take uh, the workers of the North East in particular 
uh, with us on that journey. But what a cheek, what a cheek that Liam Kerr stands there and talks about Scottish jobs uh, when it comes to energy, when his party, when the, the party that he belongs to, the UK government, have continued to block, have continued to delay, have continued to dither when it comes to the Scottish cluster and the ACON project, which they have refused, refused to give permission to and have relegated to track two. So let me just say once again, the Tories can never be trusted when it comes to protecting Scottish jobs. And supplementary, Fergus Ewing. Presiding officer, here in Scotland and the UK, we will need and continue to need and rely on gas for decades to come. Uh, the gas is imported in many cases from the USA, but their gas is produced with over four times, four times the carbon emissions of Rosebank. Therefore, does the First Minister agree with me that sacrificing uh, development of our own gas resource would not only decimate tens of thousands of highly skilled, well-paid jobs in a form of economic masochism advocated by the wine bar revolutionaries in the Green Party, <laughs> but, also, but also make climate change worse, actually worse, not better. Uh, before the First Minister before the First Minister responds, I would remind all members of the requirement to treat, treat each other with courtesy and respect. First Minister. I've got a feeling, uh, Deputy Presiding Officer, that's not the first time you've had to tell off your brother, uh, uh, one, one, one suspects. But let me, let me uh, actually, at some point of agreement uh, with Fergus Ewing, say that uh, nobody in the Scottish Government, uh, certainly uh, nobody uh, that, that I've heard, certainly not just not in the Scottish Government, but also in the Green Party, have said uh, that extraction has to stop uh, tomorrow, because we understand that a just transition means that we have to take the workers of the North East with us. And of course the point is that it's a just transition. It has to be uh, just, and that's why we believe that, that of course uh, that, that we, excel we must accelerate uh, that just transition with further investment uh, in those uh, non-fossil fuel uh, alternatives. Uh, what I would say is that independent research uh, based on industry projections uh, found that production in the North Sea will be around about a third of 2019 levels by 2035. So we know it is a declining base and hence why we have to make sure uh, that we are accelerating uh, that just transition. And meanwhile, uh, as of 2019, uh, only 16% of the oil and gas coming into Scotland, uh, including imports from Norway and beyond, is consumed uh, in Scotland. So reducing our energy consumption while ramping up our energy generation capabilities through renewables, through hydrogen, will mean that a net zero Scotland will not only be less reliant on importing oil and gas, but hopefully be a net exporter of cleaner and greener energy to the rest of the UK and beyond. Yeah. Question number four, Audrey Nichols. Thank you. To ask the First Minister, in light of his recent visit to the Port of Aberdeen, what engagement he's had with the business community since taking office? First Minister. Resetting the relationship with business is a core priority for this government. On Tuesday, I set out plans to agree a new deal for businesses and the introduction of a new group co-chaired by the Cabinet Secretary for the Wellbeing Economy, for Fair Work and Energy that will explore how government can better support our businesses and communities using all of the policy levers we have to our hands. Uh, during my visit to the Port of Aberdeen, I announced £25 million, as I've already uh, referenced, to be invested uh, for uh, the just transition away from oil and gas. This was the first of many meetings I have planned as part of an extensive programme of engagement with business and industry leaders across all of Scotland's sectors to identify those priority uh, areas of both challenge but also opportunity. And later today, uh, I will also meet with the main business organisations to personally reiterate my commitment to this new working relationship and how we can deliver on our mission of a fairer, greener and indeed a growing wellbeing economy for all of Scotland's people. Audrey Nicholl. I thank the First Minister for his response. The Scottish Government's commitment to agree a new deal for business has received an extremely positive response from the business community and we all agree it is absolutely vital we work together constructively to develop our wellbeing economy. Given the substantial pressures many businesses are facing from rising costs 
and a disastrous Brexit, it's clear urgent and sustained action is needed to maximise the support available to them. So can the First Minister say any more about the steps the Scottish Government is taking to ensure it can best support our businesses using the full policy levers it has at its disposal? And does he agree that, the full powers, that with full powers over our economy resting with this Parliament, we would be much better placed to support our businesses to thrive? First Minister. Of course we would, absolutely, and I can hear groans and jeers from the Scottish Conservatives. Well, let's, let's read what the chairman of the OBR said about the impact of Brexit on the UK economy. He said it was on the same magnitude as COVID, as the COVID pandemic, an energy price crisis uh, and, uh, uh, that, that the COVID pandemic has had. And he said also, of course, in fact, the Centre for European Reform said that they found that Brexit has cost the UK a staggering £33 billion in lost trade. So this is not just the opinion of the SNP-led Scottish Government, it's the opinion of those experts in the economy who are saying that Brexit has seriously impacted uh, trade in the UK and, of course, trade here in Scotland too. And businesses are the backbone of the economy. I'm a proud uh, son of a small uh, business owner, and that's why the New Deal uh, for Business, which I articulated uh, in our policy prospectus on Tuesday, is so, so important. It's crucial. And through the Scottish Budget, we responded to businesses' biggest ask on non-domestic rates by freezing the poundage in 23-24. That's estimated to save ratepayers £308 million. So we'll continue to use the powers of devolution that we have to the absolute maximum effect to grow and transform our wellbeing economy. However, I agree, we need significantly increased policy levers to ensure that Scotland will be wealthier, will be fairer, will be greener, uh, and, of course, that the well-being of our people is enhanced. Until we do that, I'm afraid that the Scottish Conservatives will continue to have the levers that we can see they use to harm our people and to harm business and trade here in Scotland. A supplementary, Dr Slumson. Uh, thank you, President Officer. Connectivity between the port of Aberdeen and the Freeport in Cromarty will be vital for the North East economy. So will the First Minister grow a backbone, stand up to the Greens and fully duel the A96 as promised? First Minister. And this goes to the, to the heart of the Conservatives' hypocrisy. The demand we go further on tackling the climate emergency. Anything we do, including a review, for example, uh, of sections of the A96 for climate compatibility, they oppose. So it doesn't matter what the Scottish Government tries to do to ensure that we tackle the climate emergency so we leave a cleaner planet, a sustainable planet for our future generations, the Conservatives will always, always oppose it. But let me say very clearly that we are absolutely committed, of course, to the duelling uh, of the A9, but also the A96 Inverness to Nairn and Nairn Bypass. And I've said already to my good friend Fergus Ewing that we'll bring forward a timetable on that as soon as we possibly can. Question number five, Donald Cameron. To ask the First Minister whether he will provide an update on the Scottish Government's plans for highly protected marine areas following the end of its public consultation. First Minister. Our initial consultation on highly protected marine areas closed on Monday. It's only right, of course, that we do take some time to carefully consider all the responses, and there has been a substantial number of responses before we set out our next steps, uh, as I say, especially given uh, the strength of views that we all know have been expressed on this, issues, uh, on this issue. Our seas, uh, of course, must remain a source of prosperity for the nation, especially in those remote coastal and island communities. It's vital that those communities do help shape the creation of these areas, uh, which is why we chose to consult very early on in this process. Uh, my officials have held over 40 meetings relating to the process, and my colleague, Mary McCallan, will continue to engage directly with coastal and island communities before we decide our next steps together. Uh, to be clear, no sites have been selected. This will not begin until we've considered the consultation feedback and until that engagement uh, is complete. And we are determined to ensure that as many voices as possible are heard in this process. Donald Cameron. Earlier this week, the First Minister said that HPMA should not be imposed on communities that don't want them. First Minister, not one community in the Highlands and Islands wants these, not one. We all acknowledge the need to protect our marine environment, but these proposals will devastate coastal communities and threaten their very way of life, particularly the fishing sector. It's no wonder this policy has been compared to the clearances, people cleared off the land and cleared off the sea. 
Given the anger this has caused, given the widespread opposition to these plans, including from many in his own party, and given he wants to be First Minister for the whole country, will he now scrap these plans once and for all and start again? Yeah. First Minister. Well, the point is that there are no plans yet. There is a consultation. We do not have set, uh, set sites. We do not have set criteria yet. So what we want to do is at a very early stage, inception stage, in fact, work with coastal communities, island communities, our fishing communities, because ultimately I, I do believe there is agreement on the outcome. The outcome that we all want is a sustainable marine environment. Yeah. What we want, of course, is our, is our fishing industry uh, and our fishing uh, our seas to be uh, sustainable for the future. We want that industry to continue, but we can only do that, of course, if the marine environment is sustainable. <coughs> so I do believe there is an agreement there. And of course, our fishing communities, our island communities, our coastal communities have often been at the forefront of that effort around sustainability. So we want to work uh, with them. We want to engage with them. All that being said, uh, I, re I will reiterate uh, what I said on Tuesday, that uh, this government will not steamroll will not uh, impose upon any community uh, a policy that they are vehemently opposed to. So uh, my, my, my colleague Marie, uh, Mary McAllen uh, will of course engage with those island communities, with those coastal communities and we will analyse those responses very carefully. But for all of those who have expressed their opposition to highly protected marine areas, uh, let me say that we are willing to engage, we are willing to, to listen and let's hope uh, we get to the agreed outcomes together. Supplementary, Kenneth Gibson. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. Does the First Minister agree that the no-take zone in Umlash Bay has had no adverse impact whatsoever and indeed has shown that conservation can help to revitalise our fishing sector and that identifying potentially highly protected marine area sites would allow more effective direct engagement with concerned fishers and communities? First Minister. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, far from having uh, any adverse uh, impact, it's shown us the benefit for both the marine environment and the people who rely on it. And I go back to that point, uh, I think a very good example in relation to, to Lamlash Bay, where it was the community that wanted that no-take uh, zone. So this is, goes to the, the central point here, that we will work with communities, hopefully to get to the outcomes that we all agree on, which is a sustainable marine environment. And based on studies that were coordinated by the community group, uh, at Lamlash Bay, it's been noted that since protection, commercially import, uh, important species such as the king scallop, such as the European lobster, they've increased in size, they've increased in age, they've increased in density. So the 2008 uh, designation of the Lamlash Bay no-take zone uh, off the coast of Arran, uh, as I say, was a result of campaigning by the local community. And I think that is a good model for us to take forward uh, our, our, our work around uh, highly protected marine areas. Supplementary, Liam McCarthy. Officer, earlier this week, Orkney Islands Council uh, joined counter counterparts in Shetland and the Western Isles in voicing the strongest possible opposition to the government's plans for highly protected marine areas, given the potential impact on island communities. On the same day, the First Minister announced welcome, if long overdue, uh, U-turns on his deposit return scheme and alcohol advertising sanctions. Can I therefore urge him not to spend months defending the indefensible and confirm, in light of the significant and growing opposition in coastal and island communities, that his government will now rethink its plans to arbitrarily designate 10% of Scottish waters as HPMAs by 2026? First Minister. Lee MacArthur will be well aware that when I was Transport and Islands Minister, uh, I introduced and brought forward island proofing. It's something I believe in uh, to my very core. And therefore, uh, we will not impose uh, upon any community, island or otherwise, a policy that they vehemently oppose. Uh, let's analyse the consultation responses. Let's agree on the outcomes. I think there is generally broad agreement on the outcome. That we want to have a marine environment that is sustainable. We want to have a fishing sector that is sustainable in the long term. And of course, protecting our biodiversity <coughs> helps us with that outcome. So we will uh, continue to engage. I will continue to engage personally. Marie McAllen uh, will also engage personally. She will um, no doubt travel uh, right across the country, including uh, to Orkney and Shetland to meet with those who have expressed concerns. And together, I hope we can get to a place where we all agree on the outcome. And then, of course, uh, move forward to protect our marine environment to make it more sustainable for the future. Question number six, Rosa Grant. To ask the First Minister what immediate action the Scottish Government will take to improve the situation regarding ferry services across the Highlands and Islands in light of recent reports of unprecedented disruption. First Minister. 
As uh, I have already said in response to a question from uh, Anna Sawa, I do recognise this significant impact that delays that disruption does have during the annual overhaul programme, and it's regrettably had on our island communities. We know that island communities, uh, of course, rely on these lifeline services, uh, not just, uh, of course, individuals, but businesses uh, too. And I'm committed to investing in our ferry services. Indeed, we're going to be delivering six new major vessels to serve Scotland's ferry network by 2026. It's a priority uh, for me and for the government uh, that I lead. Uh, we've already procured MV Lochvisa, previously chartered the MV Arrow, and of course we look forward to shortly welcoming the MV Alfred into service, providing some additional resilience to the network. In the meantime, we'll continue to press CalMAC to consider all options to minimise the impact on communities and indeed businesses. Uh, and I know the Minister for Transport is engaging very closely on this issue. He, he's held resilience calls with CalMAC, with Transport Scotland, in light of the latest disruption. And he has proactively engaged directly with local stakeholders, uh, with our operators and CMAL on improving reliability and resilience right across the network. Rosa Grant. The Transport Minister refused to take responsibility for the ferry crisis, and he also refused compensation payments to local businesses who are actually going to the wall because of these ferry failures. Now that constituents in Uist are, will have no mainland services from Sunday, that's two days' time, is the First Minister going to do the same? Or is he going to tell us what emergency provision he's going to put in place? Has he asked the MOD for help? And what compensation is he going to give to businesses that will close as a result of this? First Minister. Again, I've already said in response to the question from Anasawa that we will consider uh, the issues around uh, compensation and what more we can do to support businesses when there is uh, disruption. But I don't agree with the premise of our question. I know that Kevin Stewart uh, has been directly involved in engaging uh, with CalMAC, but also with the island communities that have been affected. And I go back uh, to my response to both Anasawa and to Rhoda Grant that we have uh, the MV, MV uh, Alfred uh, coming on board, I hope, uh, within the coming uh, days, and that will provide some further resilience uh, to our network. But I take the points that have been made uh, and raised, and of course any disruption uh, to our ferry network is regrettable. And the other point that I know Kevin Stewart has been engaging uh, on is that, that we want to ensure that we improve our communication, improve CalMAX communication with islanders when this disruption takes place. And brief supplementary, please, Jimmy Helker-Johnson. Thank you. The Scottish Government has now officially asked the UK Armed Forces to step in and provide a temporary replacement service across the Corran Narrows. Um, while this is a Highland Council-run service, it highlights the lack of resilience and the growing crisis in Scotland's ferry network. So can the First Minister advise me if he was involved in signing off that request to the MOD, and if so, when he did that? And given the need to ensure that this kind of disruption and the severe impact it has on local communities doesn't happen again, will he commit today to either he or his new transport minister visiting the area at the earliest opportunity to meet with local residents and businesses? First Minister. Can I just... Um... Just a slight correction to Jimmy Halcrow-Johnson's question. It is our MOD, yeah. our Scottish exactly. taxpayers' uh, money, exactly. of course, yeah. that helps to fund uh, the MOD. So it's important that when he talks about the MOD stepping in, of course, these are our assets that Scottish taxpayers help to contribute uh, towards. I think that's a really important uh, point of clarification. And, of course, the Scottish Government has been uh, as helpful. We've helped to facilitate that engagement between Highland Council. We know the Corran Ferry is their responsibility uh, and uh, the MOD. In fact, it was my colleague uh, Ian Blackford, the MP for Ross Sky and Loch Haber, who has helped to ensure that facilitation between Highland Council, between the MOD uh, and the Scottish Government. So we'll do everything we possibly can uh, in relation to that MACA uh, request. My understanding uh, is that there are currently initial assessments that the MOD uh, are doing, whatever the next steps are in relation to that process that involves the Scottish Government, we will be as helpful uh, as we possibly can. And can I just also remind Jamie Halcrow Johnson, it was the, the former Deputy uh, First Minister that announced in his final budget um, that the Scottish Government would provide full revenue funding to councils who run their own ferry services. And our officials are in very proactive engagement with the Highland Council about these costs. And of course, Kevin Stewart uh, would be happy, of course, to visit uh, the Highlands <coughs> and talk to the local community uh, about the Corran ferry route. Question number seven, Beatrice Wishart. 
to ask the First Minister what urgent action the Scottish Government is taking to ensure that everyone who is eligible for any cancer testing and screening programme is receiving their invitation on time in light of recent reports that 13,000 women who were mistakenly removed from the national database are being offered an appointment for a cervical smear. First Minister. Okay, I thank uh, Beatrice Wishart for raising what is an incredibly important uh, issue indeed. The national audit of the cervical screening programme is underway as a result of an incident that was brought to our attention in 2021, where a small number of women were incorrectly excluded from the cervical screening programme after having subtotal hysterectomies. At this final stage of the audit is precautionary. It follows an initial audit in 2021 of those women who are considered to be at the highest risk of being wrongly excluded. No cervical cancers were detected as part of that audit and the risk to participants, participants in this audit uh, is very low. Uh, the actual number of patients who need to be reinstated to the screening programme obviously won't be known until that audit uh, is complete and all affected individuals are contacted. Uh, funding has been made available, particularly to GP practices, to ensure they can absorb any increase in demand. I thank the First Minister for that answer and I recognise the complexity of the case and we were talking about a statistically small number, but every number is a person who will no doubt be concerned when they receive a letter. So can the First Minister assure those with concerns that measures are in place to ensure similar errors are not repeated, that all those affected will be contacted as swiftly as possible? And can he indicate what work is underway to improve access to screening, including the introduction of self-sampling, to ensure this news does not further impact uptake? First Minister. Um, Beatrice Wisher is, is absolutely right. Although the numbers uh, may be small, if you receive that letter, I can imagine the impact, the concern and the worry uh, that you have. And that's why I was very keen to reiterate that the women who were called in the first audit were the ones that were most at risk. And if you are receiving a letter or being asked to come back in for screening, uh, there is still uh, there's low risk. But that, of course, there is still risk. And that will be a concern uh, for those that receive uh, the, the, the call-up as part uh, of uh, the audit. Uh, Beatrice Wisher is also right uh, to ask uh, what we have done uh, in relation to ensure that this uh, error does not occur again. And this is an error uh, that has occurred, um, I'm afraid, uh, we know in the system for, for many, uh, many years. Uh, so we have made improvements um, to the IT uh, systems uh, the, the, in relation to cer the cervical cancer screening programme. Uh, we've also improved the record keeping uh, process. All 14 boards uh, have taken, uh, territorial boards have taken action uh, in relation to their audit activities. And we expect the audit to be fully completed um, in the next uh, 12 months. Again, we've started uh, with those at the highest uh, of uh, risk. In relation to uh, cervical cancer, she's already mentioned uh, some of the initiatives that we're taking forward, uh, but also uh, we are uh, seeking to do more uh, in relation to mobile screening units as well, which we know are particularly important in rural, remote uh, and indeed island communities. But I think Beatrice Wisher raises a very important point uh, indeed. Uh, around uh, the fact that we need to make sure that screening of all cancers, cervical cancer of course included, is as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. Uh, thank you. And we will now move briefly to general and constituency supplementaries. I call Fiona Hislam. The First Minister will be aware of an article in this morning's Telegraph by Conservative peer David Frost, which proposes to reduce and remove powers of devolution and undermines this Parliament. Can I ask the First Minister how his government intends to defend the powers of this Scottish Parliament from unelected Tories at Westminster intent on dismantling devolution? And does he agree that it is for all MSPs from all parties to defend this Parliament from an attack on democracy? First Minister. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lord Frost, unelected Tory peer, gave the game away. He said the quiet bit out loud. He said what every single Scottish Conservative really thinks. He said, he said, and I'll quote him, presiding officer, not only must no more powers be devolved to Scotland, it is time to reverse that process. He said, Ministers should make it clear that if re-elected, they will review and roll back some of the currently devolved powers. It's hardly a surprise that the party that didn't support the Scottish Parliament now wants to dismantle the Scottish Parliament. 
But let me be abundantly clear, whether it's on the Section 35 veto, whether it's their inability to grant an exemption in, under the IMA, uh, under the Internal Market Act, whether it's the fact they want to curtail our excellent international development work or external engagement. With the SNP-led Scottish Government, we will always defend our democracy and we will always defend the voice and the will of the Scottish people. I call Ros McCall. Thank you, Presiding Officer. The First Minister will be aware of the NSPCC Scotland report, keeping the promise to infants zero to three. The report states that in Scotland we have a baby blind spot in the care system. It also states that despite the youngest children in Scotland being the most vulnerable to harm, the zero to three age group can often be overlooked, which is shocking, especially when a quarter of all child protection orders are for infants under 20 days old. It makes reference to the need to improve support and redesign of services to keep the promise. So given the public commitments made by the previous First Minister, what will the current First Minister do to ensure the baby blind spot in Scotland is removed once and for all? First Minister. There's a, a very important issue raised by uh, Ros McCall indeed, and she's right to uh, scrutinise what the government is going to be doing to keep the promise. I made a, a, an unapologetic and unequivocal commitment in relation to this government's uh, determination to keep the promise. Uh, I, uh, of course, have appointed a minister that has responsibility uh, for keeping the pro promise, and Natalie Dawn will report directly to me uh, as First Minister on that particular uh, issue. So uh, I will lay out, uh, and we will lay out as a government in detail, uh, what we can do uh, for care experienced <coughs> young people. Uh, there, of course, has been some uh, legislation passed by this Parliament on issues such as, for example, sibling separation. But what I heard from care experienced young people in particular was that we need to go further in terms of implementation uh, of that legislation uh, on the ground. And Ros McCall's import, uh, rightly raises the issue of the baby uh, blind spot, as it is referred to by NSPCC. Uh, and of course, that is another issue uh, that I am determined uh, that we do more on. So uh, I will give, as I say, an unequivocal commitment uh, to ensuring that this government keeps the promise, not just for uh, baby and young people, that is important, uh, but of course care experience is lifelong. And I call Jackie Bealey. Scottish hospices are facing a perfect storm of rising staff costs, increased energy and running costs and a tough fundraising environment. They need urgent funding to match the NHS pay uplift so they can offer their staff the fair wage that they deserve. Hospice UK met with the First Minister in his old role as Health Secretary some five weeks ago, but all they have had since are holding responses. Time is running out and hospices will need to make decisions in order to sustain their services. So will the First Minister act swiftly, indeed today, and provide hospices with the additional funding that they so urgently need? First Minister. We are, of course, uh, investing a record £19 billion in our health and social care system this year. That's only been possible because of the progressive taxation uh, that we have brought forward uh, as a government. I will uh, speak, of course, uh, with uh, Cabinet Secretary for Health and Social Care to see what more we can possibly do, what funding we are able to provide. But every single penny of our funding has been allocated. So, but look, that I understand that the, the issues raised by Jackie Bailey on behalf of Hospices UK are very, very important. I value the work that hospices do right across the country. I've had personal experience uh, when I lost an uncle uh, to, to uh, prostate can uh, pancreatic cancer, forgive me, uh, many, many years ago. So uh, I, I do take the issues that uh, Jackie Bailey raises very seriously indeed, and we'll look to see what, what we can do, whatever we can do, to support the excellent work our hospices do right across the country. Thank you. That concludes First Minister's